You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And it's time for the Naked Scientist. Give us a call on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Just received an email from Brooks Becker about, um, for, with a question for the Naked Scientist. We'll ask that in just a moment, Chris um, uh, uh, Brooks. And please... Uh, remember, you you can send us your emails in advance because then we look at them throughout the week and uh, we, we we can give them some space. Chris, good morning. Hello. Hello. Okay, I love boiled eggs. I love all sorts of <laughs> eggs, actually. Uh, but yeah, boiled eggs. I didn't know that it's possible to unboil an egg. What's that about? Uh, it is now. <laughs> Researchers at uh, the University of California, Irvine, and also uh, in Australia, have come up with a strategy to re-nature, in other words, undenature the proteins in boiled eggs. Now, they've done this as an experiment because they want to apply it more widely, and boiled egg is a good place to start, but it is pretty impressive. So they took an egg that had been boiled for 90 minutes, so it was pretty hard-boiled by that point, and you know that the runny part of the egg, the white, goes hard, white, and rubbery when you boil an egg, and this is because it's made of protein, and when you heat proteins up uh, to um, high temperatures, as with a boiling pot of water, the Amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, they're like beads along a string, they refold the protein into a distorted shape, which is why the egg white changes colour. And the protein then can't work anymore because proteins have a, a structure which is precisely designed, for want of a better phrase, to suit their purpose. And if you bend them out of shape, it's rather like bending a coat hanger. It won't work in the wardrobe very well anymore. You need to unbend it and get it back to the shape it should be to get its function back. And that's what Gregory Weiss and his colleagues were trying to do, and they found a way of doing this. Uh, in this case, they took the egg white, they dissolved a small amount or a small fraction of the protein in a strong solution of a chemical called urea. This is pretty standard in biochemistry to do this to proteins. And then they put these um, solutions into tiny tubes that were just a thousandth of a millimetre across, put them in a centrifuge, which is a device that spins things at an angle of 45 degrees, and span them. And the point of doing this is that proteins, because they are like a, a series of beads along a string, if you spin them in a gradient like that, then it applies a sheer force to them and it sort of unwinds them and pulls them out straight. And then if you put the protein back into a salt solution, which is a sort of ideal solution for it to exist in, it refolds itself back up into the correct shape and comes back to the normal activity it had before. And this is literally renaturing protein, or in this case, unboiling the egg. And the reason they want to do this, mm -hmm. or do it quickly, cheaply and efficiently, is that there are lots of drugs that we use which are based on proteins. Insulin is a really good example. The chemical yeah. we give to people who have diabetes. And we want to be able to make these proteins very cheaply, very efficiently, very cost-effectively. But at the moment, that's hard to do because you have to produce a lot of these proteins in very expensive and very um, costly-to-maintain cell culture systems. You can't just use cheap and nasty bacteria to do it because the bacteria don't take care when they're making the proteins and they fold them all wrong and you end up with all these insoluble aggregates that you have to throw away and that harms your cost-effectiveness. If you could nonetheless take those aggregates and denature them and then renature them back the right way, like these guys have done with eggs, then you can make your proteins much better, much more cheaply, and in much greater volumes. And that's got to be a good thing. So this is the first step towards being able to do that. Let's go straight to the lines. Is it Mandla in Johannesburg? Good morning. Hi, good morning, Lady. Good morning, Chris. Mm. Yes. Good morning. Hi, my question is with regards to being drunk, intoxicated with alcohol. 
what is the scientific explanation exactly that <laughs> happens inside your, your body? When you're you drunk. Right, yeah. okay. Uh, there's a number of things that happen, but the active ingredient in an alcoholic beverage is alcohol, or to give it its scientific name, ethanol. When you drink this, it dissolves through the wall of the stomach. It also gets pretty well absorbed through the lining of the small bowel. It goes into the bloodstream. And because ethanol likes to dissolve in fatty tissue, it makes a beeline for your brain because it comes out of the blood and it dissolves through the fatty layers that surround the brain and gets into your brain tissue. What we understand about the effects of alcohol is that it activates or potentiates the action of a family of nerve transmitter chemicals called GABA gamma-aminobutyric acid. This is your brain's inhibitory neurotransmitter system. In other words, these GABA signals turn off the activity of your nerve cells. They keep your nerve cells from firing too much. And this is why, as you increase the dose of alcohol, you become more and more sleepy. You quite literally put yourself to sleep because alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. It's a sedative because it's potentiating all of your inhibitory nerve transmitter systems. The reason it affects your behaviour, and in some people it makes people become fairly abusive, other people become funny, other people just go to sleep, is because it will turn on and turn off these GABA circuits in different parts of the brain differently in different people. So in some people, it will activate certain parts of the brain more strongly than others. And as a result, people's behaviour goes through these different phases before they ultimately do go to sleep. And if you overdo the alcohol to an extreme, then uh, obviously that's always damaging, but it will also cause your gut to rebel because your gut can sense that there's a chemical that's irritating it and that's why people also are often sick if they, eat too, if they drink too much alcohol. So the first thing is it just obviously gets into your nervous system and affects the uh, neurotransmitters, but at a higher dose it will actually irritate and damage the lining of your um, intestine and that's what makes you ill. Okay. All right, Hang so Manda, you're going to be we can talk about that next week. <laughs> you're staying away from ethanol this weekend? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it Ryan in Pretoria? Hi. Hi, Rudy. How are you? Fine. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, I just like to ask the scientists: Why do we get a brain freeze when we have something cold, specifically like slush? Mm-hmm. Oh, I get that. Something yes. terrible. It's it's a horrible sensation, isn't it? And Definitely. what we th- Yeah, what we think is happening is when you put something very cold into your mouth, because your mouth is very close to your brain, the roof of your mouth is literally a piece of bone and then you're into your brain cavity, the blood vessels that go around your brain um, pass very close to the roof of your mouth. And the body, if you get a very cold temperature in your mouth, then there are various thermal sensors in this area that detect the drop in temperature and they presume that your whole head and your whole brain must therefore be freezing cold. And in order to maintain the status quo, it augments the flow of blood through your head. And when you open up arteries, the blood vessels that bring blood in, in a very dramatic way like this, it's very painful. It's like a mini migraine because when you have a migraine headache, this is when blood vessels have opened up and become very big, dilated and and pulsatile. And that's the throbbing headache. And so your brain opens up its blood vessels transiently, boosting the blood flow in a painful way until the temperature goes flying back up and then the body says, ah, look, the temperature's correct again. Now you can close those blood vessels down again. Not everyone gets this, but a lot of people do. 
Okay, thank you very much, Ryan. I think many people have experienced that. I saw Thomas nodding vigorously there, and all my producers as well. Is it Heather in Blegauri? Good morning. That's, that's right. Good morning. Mm. Um, I would just like to ask, um, why does it sound as if crickets are moving, as if their chirping is moving? As soon as you move towards the cricket and you think you've located it, it moves in another direction or appears to. Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> and off the cuff... Uh, I don't know. The way they make the sound is that they're rubbing their legs against their body parts. And this is what creates the series of, of little vibrations that then you hear as that chirping noise. How they would be able to deceive you into thinking the sound is coming from somewhere else, I don't know. I'd have to have to look into that because I wasn't aware they were doing that. But I, th- I can get what you mean. You sort of think mm. you're tracking them down and then it's coming from somewhere else. It may, it may be that there's more than one insect and that, in fact, we know that they don't chirp all the time. We know that, that, that it comes and goes in waves. Um, and so it may be that when you are hearing one of them, you think you've tracked down the one that was making the sound, and you probably have, but now the sound is coming from, from its friend across the room. That may be the reason. But uh, I'll ask a friend of mine who's an entomologist and see if there's, if there's any evidence that they also change the, the frequencies of their chirping to, to sort of simulate a Doppler effect or something to make it look like the sound is coming and going. I'll have to ask someone about that. It's a great question, though. It is. And, and Heather, just a couple of years ago, I literally had to move out of my hotel room in the early hours of the morning because I couldn't. And you know, I'm not a baby. I'm a, I'm a tough girl. So when it first started, I thought, oh, it will go away. I can sleep through this. And then I got up and I spent like a whole hour chasing this thing. And eventually I said, no, I've got to get out of this room. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Uh, bye-bye. Brooks Spectra asks, um, Dear Chris, this is something I've wondered about for years. What exactly happens to one's leg or arm when it goes to sleep. Is this something to do with circulatory system, the nervous system, or both? And Brooks also says that uh, he did interview you, Chris, um, uh, about your presentation when you were at the Grahamstown Festival several years ago. So he, he just added that in the email. So tell us about this. Would you believe it? That mm-hmm. was six years ago. Brooks. Oh, my oath. <laughs> gone fast. 2009, yeah. we were over in Grahamstown. Oh. I don't know where that time's gone, really. It's scary, isn't it? It is. What's happening when your legs and arms go to sleep? Well, I had this happen the other night and I was sitting there in the armchair and I, I had a computer resting on my lap and I was tapping away programming some stuff and uh, then I stood up and I couldn't feel my leg and I nearly fell over because it was most extraordinary. I just had no concept of where my leg was. It wouldn't do what I was telling it to do and I couldn't feel the floor. Why is this? Well, when you sit in the same position for a very long time, it's possible if you adopt a bad posture to squeeze the nerves that run through your tissue because like electrical cables your nerves run out of your spinal cord and they run through certain tissue structures to get down to the the territory the part of the body they supply in the same way that you would run a mains cable across the ceiling to then branch out into various lights and things in the ceiling it's the same with your nervous system when you press on a nerve you can cut off the supply of blood to that part or that segment of the nerve just by squeezing the nerve gently. And because nervous tissue has an extremely high metabolic rate, although nerves do continue to work for a little while after you cut off the blood supply because they've got a stored charge of electricity inside them, eventually the gradient of electrical charge between the inside and outside of the nerve that it uses to make nerve impulses is sufficiently eroded that you can't trigger any more nerve impulses. And as a result, when the information tries to come up your leg or go down your leg, it meets this area where you've been squeezing the nerve, and that area is electrically inexcitable, and it's a bit like you taking some snippers and cutting a wire running across the ceiling of your room. 
the electricity will get to the cut point or it will come to the cut point and then it can't go any further so no further power will flow through and therefore the signal cannot get between your spinal cord and the part of the body that it either wants to control or wants to get information in from. And most of the time if you only squish, squish the nerve for a little while then as soon as you take the pressure off of it then um, the physical deformation of the nerve and the pressure on the little blood vessels called vasa nervorum they, that is re restored and then the nerve comes back to activity within about 10 minutes no problem. It's much more dramatic in certain situations. We had a question earlier about alcohol and its effects. There is a medical phenomenon called Friday night or Saturday night palsy. And this mm -hmm. is where people come home, stagger in, having had a skinful in the pub, and they drop off to sleep with their arm over the back of the chair. And it presses up the back of the chair under their armpit and squashes the nerves that run down to the hand and wrist. And because people stay anaesthetized in this way for an extended period of time until they wake up the next morning and then move their arm that's when permanent damage can be done to the nerve and people end up with uh, paralysis and a loss of sensation over the bottom half of their arm and sometimes it never recovers properly so be very careful about doing that okay is it chris in alberton good morning to you chris thanks for joining us yeah uh, hi good morning yes um, uh, uh, yesterday i was flying back from cape town and uh, i was looking down at the clouds and uh, the uh, the shadows that makes on the ground, and I was wondering, you know, it just struck me: why do clouds actually agglomerate? Why, why don't, why does the moisture just uh, spread throughout the space that is available? And you know, why do you see uh, bits and pieces of clouds in in, in a certain space? Uh, could you answer that? Yeah, hi, Chris. So um, it's a good question. If there's mm. all this water vapor going up into the atmosphere. Why does the water want to get together in a cloud? Why not just spread out everywhere? And this is a phenomenon called nucleation. When you have um, particles of water as, as molecules in the air, they exist either as single water molecules, H2O, or occasionally they join up and make dimers, two lots of water molecules stuck together, and occasionally trimers, three lots of water molecules stuck together. But on the whole, they're drifting around as molecules. But as air rises and therefore experiences lower pressure in the atmosphere, it expands. And if a gas expands, its temperature also drops. If the temperature drops, the water molecules find it easier to bump into each other and then stick together. And once they stick together, they've made a water droplet. And if you've got one water droplet, it's much easier for other molecules to stick on and make a bigger water droplet. So once a cloud begins to form, it's much easier to form more cloud material around it in the low temperature, low pressure conditions. And this is why when warm air that's saturated with water rises, expands, cools, and then a cloud starts to form, then all of the water joins the party and you see this big blob of cloud all at the same sort of height in the atmosphere because any further water rising from below is going to enter that cloud and then it's going to condense its water droplets within the body of that cloud. Thanks, Chris. And uh, who came in first? It is Barris in Bloberg in Cape Town. Good morning. Good morning, morning. Mm. Uh, Chris, um, I've been reading up on the internet and uh, you know, they talk about humans that only 10% of our brain. I always find it so strange. I mean, is evolution trying to put Paris for something that's only 10%? Did you hear that, uh, Barris? Um, uh, Chris? Uh, no, I couldn't get it because the line oh. wasn't. Yeah, why, why does it say that humans only use 10% of our brain? Why can't humans use yeah. more than, yeah? Yeah, so the, the, the question being, if you've got this massive brain, what's the evidence we only use 10% of it? Well, this is a myth, actually, Barris. I'm very sorry to 
to um, disabuse you of this notion, <laughs> it's not true. Your brain is the most metabolically hungry organ in your whole body. Despite weighing only about 2% of the mass of you, obviously I don't know you physically, but I'll assume that you're a, a regular human, and that means that your brain probably constitutes about 2% of your body mass. Your brain is nonetheless, despite its small contribution to your body size, is actually accounting for 20% of the oxygen that you're burning and, and using to turn um, sugars into carbon dioxide. It's consuming 20% of the blood that your heart beats. That make, makes it one of the most metabolically, if not the most metabolically hungry tissue in the body. There's no way, from an evolutionary point of view, given the massive amount of energy that your brain is therefore burning off, it's about 20 to 30 watts. So you could have a 30-watt light bulb sitting on your head running at, an, at a rate equivalent to the energy conversion in your brain. There's no way the body, from an evolutionary point of view, could maintain an organ which was that metabolically expensive to maintain and only use 10% of it. That's the first sort of metabolic argument. The other argument is, if you look at someone who has had a stroke, a stroke is where you interrupt the blood flow to the brain, more usually, or less commonly, you have a bleed into the brain, this damages brain tissue and robs that person of the function of that bit of the brain that uh, the event affected. A person who's had a stroke will tell you, and you can easily see, that they're not normal, that they, they have some kind of deficit. Now, if you're only using 10% of your brain at any time, that person would only have a deficit a small proportion of the time, but they don't. They have their problem all the time. And that's because every part of your brain is active all the time, but when you attend to or do or perform a certain task, because certain parts of your brain are specialised for doing that task, what the brain does is it increases the level of activity in the part of the brain that's specialised for doing that job, but it doesn't mean that everything else switches off. It just means that relative to everywhere else in the brain, some areas have become a bit more active, but everything is active all the time. It's a very costly organ to have, and that's the reason, actually, that we're born um, as little babies that are so helpless, because there's no way a baby with an even bigger brain would be mm. able to be born, because it would get stuck, and it would therefore cost the life of itself and its mother. So babies are born as a necessary evil at this very premature stage of brain development, because our brains get even bigger and even more metabolically hungry as we get a bit older. That's fascinating stuff. Shall we go to Sydney in Pretoria? Hi. Hi, uh, Chris. The theory of uh, evolution. Monkeys becoming human. Why do we still have monkeys? And when are they going to develop into becoming <laughs> human? Um, looking at some of the political parties in many countries, I would say that uh, this is probably <laughs> still at a very early stage. Um, let's first of all just get a couple of terms of reference here, okay? Evolution is the process by which things adapt and change in their environment in response to pressure from the environment. But at no time has a monkey turned into a human. This is actually a myth. What has actually happened is that through the process of evolution, about six million years ago, there was an ancestor which was a, some kind of hominid, it was a primate-like animal, and it was the direct ancestor of a human and a chimpanzee, and it was closely related to other animals like monkeys. That gave rise to one lineage, group of organisms, that slowly evolved and became more specialised in response to the environment they lived in to become more like us. Another lineage, a spin-off from it, evolved in a different way and became modern-day chimpanzees and their relatives. Mm -hmm. 
so at no time has a monkey turned into a human. It's a slow process of things becoming more and more subspecialized and changing over time in response to their environment to end up in the form that they now have. This is going on all the time, but in the same way that if we wind the clock back further, you will find that all of us are related to bacteria, but at no time is a bacterium overnight going to turn into a human, and a human probably won't go back the other way, although some people are the scum of the earth, admittedly. <laughs> uh, th therefore, you, one has to take a very long-term viewpoint of evolution. It takes millions of years to, to, for things to happen, because the changes are tiny increments over time. And every time a human has children, that person passes on to their children 30 to 50 new genetic changes in their DNA. And those genetic changes may do nothing, they may do something very subtle, and over time they slowly build up to change an individual's characteristics, an individual's abilities, and if those abilities are advantageous to that person or that individual in the environment in which they live, that person is much more likely to flourish and much more likely to have more children and therefore much more likely to pass more of those genes onto their offspring so those genes and their effects will become more concentrated in the population and over time they will change the appearance of that population. But it is a slow process that takes a long time. Time flies. Chris, have a lovely weekend. We'll chat to you again next week. Thanks, Reedy. And uh, bye, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye. We're going to podcast this conversation with Chris, obviously.